Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Clap, 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 clap your hands and stomp your feet. You're listening. You're listening to the Clap Your Hands Podcast. Hosted by Elliot Shore Parks and Kyle Newbeck. Here they come. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the Clap Your Hands podcast, brought to you by Odyssey Sports, brought to you by Sports Radio 94 WIP. And this pod is brought to you by what I know Kyle was rooting for, I was rooting for. (laughs) We get a a week off of games uh, between that last win and the beginning of the Boston series. So how you doing, man? Excited to to be back in Philly, I'm sure. Listen, I texted a uh, colleague on the beat yesterday that this is like the summer of George and Seinfeld, but for <laughs> Sixers beat writers, where just yes. everything broke so great for us, where even with Joel getting hurt, like obviously that's a big bummer and we'll get into the implications of all that. But for them to win that game four and I came home on Saturday night at like 930, I was off the train Beautiful. in Philadelphia knowing that I had at least a week until the next game I was going to cover was just, you almost wanted to, if I was a religious man, I would have dropped to my knees. I'm like, thank God. So it's been, well, it's been great. What's crazy too is, and I would do want to get to game four. uh, Obviously like lots of stretches of that game, certainly for the first half looked like we would get a game five in Philadelphia, but they step up, they win that game. They end the series. uh, They do something Boston and Milwaukee could not, they sweep their first round opponent and they probably had, Oh, maybe not the toughest first round opponent, but they certainly, you know, I think the Nets are better than the Hawks. So um, we're definitely going to get into that. Maxi, Harden, uh, the East in general. I mean, I feel like a lot has kind of changed over this past week in terms of Giannis's injury, Boston losing that game. Um, but I think the most important thing to start with for this pod is absolutely Joel Embiid. Um, look, I mean, they win on Saturday. He's ruled out on Friday and then more and more comes out. It's a knee sprain. Um, the sports doctor guy I follow that does a lot of NFL injuries, but also NBA, NBA injuries says it looks like it's an ACL sprain. Obviously that is speculation. Um, don't want to get too much into the, you know, that part of it, but it's not, it's not good. Uh, would be, I guess my initial reaction. So before I go more into what I think and you know, what, how fans should feel, Kyle, just kind of start us off. Like, where are you at with the Joel injury? What do you know? What do you think? And you know, uh, how, how do you think fans should feel about this? Yeah, so I'll take you through kind of the whole thing of what I heard and you know where we're at. So Doc essentially told us what triggered the MRI in the first place is that after game three, he was dealing with some pretty immediate swelling. And then there was also pain in the back of the knee. 
So that yeah. triggered some concern that there's a potential meniscus issue going on. And I think that's where a lot of people's uh, minds jumped when they heard all that. So they did the MRI. As far as I understand it, did not show structural damage. There was no deterioration in terms of things like the meniscus. That it, This is strictly a sprain uh, from what I understand. Um, and through the whole time, like we, this news came down officially like Friday night. I want to say it was, I know it was Friday night because I was actually in line for dinner in New York with uh, other <laughs> so colleagues and all of us, it goes. Yeah. all of us were like, Oh, we're going to have like an uneventful night in New York before the game tomorrow. And then just like, you look at your phone and it's like, fuck, it's just everybody <laughs> no mad that we now have to, uh, to work. Um, but so we get that news then and immediately it was kind of an optimistic bent on the injury that maybe he'll be back next week. Now, obviously at that time they did not know whether the series was going to end versus Brooklyn. Didn't know who their opponent would be moving forward, even if they had gotten through it, all that. Um, And still the message is pretty similar. Like I, I think there's in so much as there can be optimism here where your best mm-hmm. player is hurt in the playoffs once again, it does seem like this is not like a severe, he's going to be out several weeks sprain. Now, the trouble is, like, there's been a lot of reporting from Woj and Shams Charania and, you know, other plugged in people saying optimism and he could be back for this, he could be back for that. Like, I want people to understand that all that is just like, it's hope. Like, it is informed hope to some degree, but it's, you know, Joel's going to wake up today and tomorrow and Wednesday and the next day. And you can only just take it a day at a time. Like nobody's recovery timeline is the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of this is going to come down to he's probably not going to be fully healthy just period the rest of the way now. Right. Like it's going to be very difficult for him to be to get hurt. And then you're just 100 percent without any real rest time the rest of the way. And so a lot of this comes down to what is the degree of pain that Joel can tolerate and is willing to play with and that the team will look at and say, this is not putting you at additional risk of like severe injury. Right. And where I think this season is maybe distinguished from seasons past is that I think you probably have to lean more toward the risk side because the ramifications organizationally, if you just like, look, we can all sit here and say, well, if he's hurt and they lose that series and it's already a series, I would have picked Boston to win in regardless. We can say, like, the rational side of your brain says, just run it back next year. They clearly were very good. They were unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But, like, after this many years of this with James Harden and all the the whispers about Houston and potentially leaving, coach might not survive a second-round exit. Like, all this stuff adds up to if you're not going to make a push for it now, then like, when are you going to? And so I, I think that's kind of the the calculus that comes up here. It's like, and that really, it's like, it's not all in Joel's hands. Certainly the organization has a say, but a lot of this is going to just come down to how much are you willing to redline it with a chance to maybe win the title this year? So a lot of information there. Um, I, I would say when, when I found out about the injury on Friday night, uh, I was not out to dinner, so my night was not ruined from it. But <laughs> emotionally, like, 
I would actually say my initial reaction was, this feels like not a big deal. They're up 3-0. He's been getting beat up in this series. Maybe they're just saying, you know what? We'll take it super conservative with them, you know, and, and we won't play him in game four. So I was pretty feeling good about it all day Saturday. Obviously, they win the game. Um, I fire off the Sixers are going to beat Boston tweet. So clearly, I'm feeling myself and feeling uh, feeling optimistic. And then Doc says the 50-50 thing, or I yeah. think he said about 50% that he would play in game one. So that was probably the first point where I got worried about it in terms of, you know, I think you're probably similar in the way whenever we hear something in the media, we try to figure out why are they saying that? What's their goal, right? Like what made Doc decide that he wanted to basically say Joel is going to be 50% at the start of this series? And I don't know. So I'm curious what you thought of Doc's comment and outside of what has already happened, I mean, I agree. He's not going to be 100% for the series, and we'll get into that for a second. But do you think he could actually miss time? Because Doc says a 50% thing. Somebody reported um, – I'm sorry, it wasn't a report. The the sports doctor who does the NFL stuff said he thought, based off the video, Joel is probably going to miss a game or two. Again, just an opinion. Uh, but what, what are your thoughts on on missing time? Like, Do you think he's actually going to not play? Um, again, this is all speculation. because Yeah, 100%. Not- yep. I would say he won't miss more than a game unless it is worse than we are being told, which that's always possible. Like, I think, you know, everyone wants to think, I think the reaction to the 50% thing, there's the people who are like doom and gloom. This is awful. Then there are a lot of people who are like, oh, they're just trying. It's a smoke screen, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know, man, like, what is the value of a smoke screen here? Like. If Joel plays in game one, Boston will find out right away what he has and how hurt he is and how willing to test the his limits he is. Like that smoke screen lasts for exactly like three minutes of the first game in the series. Mm-hmm. It's so irrelevant. I, I mean, maybe Doc and the organization are uh, are thinking that way. I just I don't see the value of it and I don't think that it's something that you factor in here. So I would say there's there's probably more upside to them trying to make it seem like it's better than it is to be like, oh, well, yeah, 50-50 when it really could be like, let's say it was like a 25% chance and actually you might not play until it's back in Philadelphia. Like there's more justific- justification for that than to be like, oh, we don't know because you're going to play them in game one and you know that. Um, now, again, I think he probably misses one game at most. I just think if I'm trying to get inside his mind, as long as he is able to get on the floor, we've seen like Joel doesn't take long. He hasn't actually missed a ton of time in the playoffs. The problem has more been he's been compromised when he's there, right? It's like he's at 60% or 70% or whatever it is. So like, I don't think that Joel is going to be in there saying, no, I can't give it a go. I think he's going to look at himself in the mirror and say, I need and want to be out there for my teammates. And then it becomes more of a question of, well, how much does this impact him? Whether that's on defense, can he close out as hard against a team that is going to space the floor against them in Boston? Can he be as dominant and leverage his strength the same in the post when he's up against Al Horford, when he's dealing with doubles, so on and so forth? I'm not that concerned about him missing time. It just comes back to that same thing. Like how good can he be? Because that is, we've talked about it a lot. That's the biggest determining factor in whether they have a chance in this series. So 
from my experience of covering NFL injuries in terms of being in the building, talking to people, seeing the players, it's always, in my opinion, this time of the year, worse than they're letting on. Very rarely are they at the podium saying something and it's actually way better than what they're saying, right? <laughs> I, I think that this time of the year, it's just always trying to paint it because you put it perfectly. The, the reports, all that, that's optimism. That's hope, right? I, I think that when Doc came out there and said 50-50 or, or you know, 50%, in his head, he probably might be thinking it's way, way less than that, but he doesn't want to paint a super negative picture at, at the podium. So I actually do think this injury is probably, I mean, serious. I don't know. We could debate the use of that word. I think the injury is worse than they're letting on, in, in my opinion. Now, whether or not he'll play in game one, I thought last year versus Miami showed kind of the tricky situation they're in, right? Because he was very compromised versus Miami. He had the hand injury. He had the face injury. But he comes out there and just his mere presence, they win games three and game four, right? So I think that if you're if you're Joel, this is a bit of a trickier situation. Um, you know, I don't I didn't know the details of the face and the hand, so correct me if I'm wrong. But it felt like those are situations where it wasn't going to get significantly worse by him being out there. The the face was protected, the thumb what is what it is. The knee, like that is that is different. I mean, he could, to your point. If they push him too hard, he could go out there and, God forbid, knock on wood, like seriously injure that thing. And then we're talking about the beginning of next season, like missing time. Or we're talking about – Oh, not even the beginning of next season. That could be like you missed the whole season. Right. There's a devastating knee injury. So on one hand, I say to myself, he's got to be out there. Like the mere presence, as we saw versus Miami, completely shifts things. On the other hand, this is the one, you know, I mean, like the back, obviously, and, you know, we don't want him to be hurt. Like as a human, physically, you want to make sure he's at his best. But in terms of just being an athlete and missing time, the knee is probably the worst possible place you could be dealing with an injury because that could be really long. So it's going to be a tricky, it's a, a tricky decision for them. Like, you know, is two days going to be a major difference? If he doesn't play game one, is, is he ready for game two? How do they, to your point, Way out the what's the long-term ramifications if he were to play and really hurt himself. I also think him specifically as somebody that if he had a major knee injury that required major surgery, I'd be worried about him. He's a big dude, right? Like we've seen when he has time off, it takes time for him to get back to being 100%. So while I agree, Joel is going to want to be out there. And I think ultimately he will be out there. I think he will play game one. But in a season where, especially the last month, Everything seemed to be, you know, going in the right direction and he's going to win MVP and it feels like everything's rolling their way, right? He has an outstanding game one and game two. The 48 hours of the terrible game three where he kind of like pouted his way through the whole thing and almost got kicked out. And then now this injury, man, just from a Joel emotional perspective, (laughs) from a fan perspective, it's really been a a real kind of crash back down to earth from uh, from what it was prior to that. So I want to get into the schedule of round two a little bit as part of this discussion. So last night, once Boston beat Atlanta, the NBA essentially sent out a a release like, okay, these are the potential outcomes for it. So if the Celtics win in five, right, this is what the outcome is. If it goes longer, this is what the second round will look like. So the major difference between the two series. So, if the Celtics win in five, that, that'll finish Tuesday night. First game is Saturday. Second game is next Monday. Then they have a three-day break yep. between games two and three. If it goes six games or more, Boston-Atlanta, the series doesn't start until next Monday, 
but it is every other day up until game seven. Right. So they would have game seven. They have like a two day break. So if we're trying to game it out and say, which one is better for Joel? Like, I think in some ways you say, well, the longer upfront break to give him mm-hmm. more time right now and the team more time to prepare, so on and so forth. That's probably the ideal one, especially because it means Atlanta pushed Boston a little harder. They had to play more games, all that stuff. But to play every other day is just brutal. Like it's just brutal. And if you were to like, if we sit here and say, let's live in a world where Joel misses game one, regardless, he's only going to miss game one, but he's going to miss game one. If he misses game one in a series that starts Saturday, that means he comes back next Monday and then immediately has three days off before the next game. If he doesn't come back until game two of a series where it starts next week, that means mm-hmm. he doesn't play until next Wednesday, but he's not getting another break after that. It's basically yes, just balls day. to the wall, no recovery. It is what it is. And so I think there's like, I could see it either way, like in terms of what they might prefer. You might just say, we don't want to have this guy who's going to be, let's say optimistically, he's at like 90% to start that series. And that feels optimistic for what it's. You yeah, know. it feels like yeah. it's a knee. It's a lower body knee injury for a huge, yes. huge yep. person. That was like swelling that was, and had pain. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's optimistic. If you go in at 90% and then you don't get any kind of rest, like we saw him at the end of the regular season. Now, granted they're playing back to backs and what have you, but toward the end of regular season, there are some nights where Joel just didn't really have it. He didn't have the same energy to dial it up and, you know, go out there and impact the game. Does that happen in a series where it's every other day? So I could see it kind of both ways. I, I mean, really, if we really want to get into it, the best outcome is obviously the Hawks win the series in seven games. Yes, like, that would be or, or, or seven or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is still best, but I do think there is some downside risk with, uh, the more congested schedule. And I almost think it, it'd be better for Boston to just kind of kill this series off. You wait until Joel's back next Monday in game two, and it's more of a, a soft entrance ramp for him. So I was pretty torn on this as well, but now that I hear you break it down, I do think I actually side on rooting for Boston and this in five. And here's why. Because game one, I think even if Joel was at 100%, was going to be very, very difficult to win. Like first game in Boston just feels like a loss. Like in my head, I picture this Saturday, one o'clock, like the, you know, just a loss, right? Is how I pictured it. But, but if you kind of say, you know what, we'll try our best in game one, maybe we steal one, who knows? If you get Joel at a higher percentage, whatever you want to put it for games two and three, two is probably the game you're more likely to win anyway. And then three, you're back in Philly and he has three days off before there. So I think if you're trying to avoid, you know, a 2-0 hole or or God forbid a 3-0 hole, I think you probably have the best chance of being up after three games if you do the April 29th, May 1st, May 5th thing, which is with Boston closing it in five, because I think those give you the the best shot to win games two and three. Yeah, I mean, look, (laughs) this is all theoretical. We can welcome to the playoffs. This is every little detail matters at this point. I could show up at practice tomorrow, assuming they have it, and say, and they say, oh, well, Joel was decapitated at practice today. And 
he will not be it. available for, <laughs> for games two. Yes. Yeah. For games two and three at minimum. Yeah. We're and, optimistic know. about game five. Yeah, yeah. You really never know. It's, it's, you hear what you hear and you do your, your best digging to get beyond, you know, the, the team marching orders. But at some point it's just like, we're all just kind of in the dark here until the big guy decides he wants to yes. say something. So here would be one final Joel point I'll make because I've been pretty firmly in the corner of if they lose in round two to the Celtics and, you know, at the Bucks at the time, but now, now we know it'll be the Celtics that I wouldn't, I wouldn't blow it up. Like I'm, I look, I'm not okay with it, but I understand a, a, a loss to the Celtics in the second round. And that wouldn't make me make major changes. I will say if Joel is injured again, and this impacts it, I wouldn't make major changes because the only really major change would be to trade Joel and they're not going to do that, nor should they do that, obviously. But of course, if if this is how it ends, like Joel, you know, limping up because he's hurt, limping up and down the court because he's hurt, missing game one, missing, you know, whatever, like game four, who knows? It would be an extremely, extremely frustrating way for this season to end. I could handle, I could handle a loss to the Celtics if it was at full strength and they played well. I'd, I'd emotionally accepted that. I was okay with it after really kind of turning a corner on Joel and, and appreciating him for everything he can do and recognizing he's currently, in my opinion, probably the best player in the NBA, man, oh man, it would lean me right back into that corner of you can't win with a center if his body once again <laughs> breaks down in the playoffs. I'm just being honest. Like if once again, his body breaks down in the playoffs, I will, I'll fight it. I'll try hard not to be, but I will be tempted to go back to the corner of can you win with a guy that's this big as their as your best player? Now I know Kawhi Leonard's missing time, right? Giannis is out. Like injuries happen. I'm just being honest about what my emotions would be on watching the season end because of a Joel injury. Look, I get it. That's a natural <laughs> reaction, and I do think it it's been easy for between Doc and the players to take the stance of, well, there's no excuses and this and that because they're playing a Brooklyn team. They knew they're going to beat. Yeah. They, we can say all these things about it was gritty, it was tough, they found a way, and so on and so forth. And, and that all sounds great. Like I, I've loved the messaging from Doc coming into and out of that game forward. It's like, we've been in this position before. We find ways to win games. It doesn't matter if it's ugly. It doesn't matter if we have every star or no stars. Like A great example is Sacramento, who's tied 2-2 with the Golden State Warriors, the defending champions. They're the you know, a high seed, the three seed yeah. in the West. And the Sixers beat them without James and without Joel on the road at the end of like a long West Coast road trip. Like this team has found ways. And I, that's to their tremendous credit for most of this season. But it's obviously a much different story against Boston. And I don't think they'll be as upbeat and as, oh, we're going to figure it out if Joel is either can't go or is not as good, they're going to come out of that series if they were to lose it and say, well, our best player was hurt. And then it's the excuse yeah, making I, thing again. And like, nobody wants it. to hear it. Like I, yeah. I get it. I I'm with you to some degree. Like if they were to lose in a tough six or seven and Boston is just, that's a better team than them yeah. or a healthier team, whatever it is. At some point you just have to say they had home court and, and this is kind of the, the product of that. But if they go out meekly, if it's all the excuse making and, well, we didn't never really got to see and blah, 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 then there is a reason that people have been hesitant to really go all in with this team all season. It's because 
of stuff like this. And because, frankly, who we haven't even gotten to yet, James Harden has been completely unable to finish at the rim in the playoffs so far. Yeah. Like that, I think, honestly, might be what I'm watching this next series for more than the Joel stuff, right? I know that Joel is the MVP and the best player and so on and so forth. But like if James comes out and can't score in the paint the way he did against or the way he couldn't against Brooklyn, like how much money are you actually willing to give that guy? going forward and are you willing to just say he's walking out the door because if that's your guy if he's the guy who you're you're gonna have to offer him i would guess the max i think houston yeah. is gonna give him the max if if you don't you're gonna give a guy a four or five year max who who can't score at the rim in the playoffs like so sorry that's a big problem yeah so let's transition to game four and i'll we'll, we'll, we'll start with that so Game four, obviously, like to the Harden thing. I I go back and forth pretty viciously on the Harden thing because there is one side of me that says he is getting to the rim and he is making threes. And he is like, I think he's been to a certain degree what you kind of hoped he would be overall in the season, for sure. He creates a ton of offense. He makes Joel better. He makes threes at a high clip. And I think that he has been able to score for stretches when they've needed to. But there's no denying the not finishing at the rim thing is weird. I don't know if it's, just like a hitter in baseball going on a cold streak because physically it doesn't like, I don't see a physical reason he's not finishing at the rim unless you think he can't jump as high. And he's so afraid of getting a shot block that it's like altering how he's shooting at the rim, which could be it. But I think physically he's looked fine getting there. It's just finishing there. So, I mean, from game four, I guess you can talk about that a little bit too, but just more so, I mean, why do you, like, why do you think he's missing? Has he talked about it? Has he been asked about it? Like, What's your thoughts on that? So I think it's a combination of things. He said after game four, it's like they didn't do anything. Um, just it's one of those things. You just miss shots, whatever. But right. I don't see a guy. Now, game three, I will say I saw him go up strong to the basket and, you know, pretty noteworthy that that was the game that he actually looked good and finished at the rim. Mm-hmm. A lot of these misses that he has are him settling for these like 10 foot push shots, runners, floaters. And look, he can make those from time to time, but he's certainly not, he's not Trey young where the runner is like such a gigantic and important part of his Trey, arsenal. Trey young, Trey young, by the way, man, he sucks. Like I've been watching some of that. <laughs> he is like, I, I was so fooled by him. I, anyway, that's just a quick side, but watching this Boston Atlanta series, he is such a losing player, but go ahead. Well, I feel like I've said on this podcast, there's a difference between being a bad defensive player and being maybe the single worst defensive player in oh, the NBA. Yeah. So that story for another day. Anyway, so with Harden, the, the reliance on these runners and floaters has been bad. And some of it must be either he lacks the vertical explosion to get to the rim as quick as mm-hmm. he needs to, or which is arguably just as bad. He doesn't trust his body that he can get there. Like the, the mental hangups from the hamstring issues in the past that he's not willing to explode the way he might've used to. And so that's a lot. That's essentially like you're seeing the same thing I'm seeing where I think his burst on the perimeter has been pretty good. Like he was beating Nick Claxton and Mikhail Bridges, like very good defensive players and long. And then, yeah. And then essentially conceding the advantage that he gained. Like there was a play mm-hmm. in the second or the yeah, second quarter of game four, I believe, 
where he smoked Nick Claxton and then just like stopped. And yep. it was, you know, I don't know if it's because he's trying too hard to draw fouls, which that in itself is a problem, or he didn't trust that he was going to get to the basket. But either way, that's those are both bad outcomes or, or bad things for the Sixers. So I don't feel great about him coming into this series. I certainly feel worse about him than I did coming into the playoffs in general. Um, and I wish that we had gotten the full game three of him because that felt like it was like, all right, he's finally in a groove. Yeah. He's doing what they need him to do. He's essentially picking up Joel and filling that role that he needs to as the co-star. And then he has an opportunity to be kind of the guy in game four. And it's like, oh my God, this guy can't make absolutely anything inside yeah. the arc. It's crazy. Well, and the concerning thing too is coming off of the Joel discussion we just had, you know, game one, Boston on the road, very hard game. I don't think Harden has to go out and win it for you to prove that he's worth it. But that's that's the game that you, you get James for, right? That you have a legit number two. Like if you're Boston and you're missing Tatum, you feel good that you have Brown. If you're if you're Phoenix and you're missing Durant, you have Booker. And I understand James is not on the level of Booker at this point in his career. But these are the games where you say, okay, this is why we can make the argument we have one of the best duos in the NBA. Because if we're missing one, we have someone else to go to. So I mean, we'll do more about game one later in the week on more pods. But yeah, it'll be it'll be a big chance for um for Harden to step up and kind of again like show he's worth the max, show they should resign him. I think you probably have to resign him either way, is, is you know, my big picture take without getting into too much. But yeah, it'll be it'll be a big game for him. Um, the other game for a takeaway. Uh, if, if Harden's not going to be able to score and Embiid's not going to be there, you're going to need Maxi to, to just completely go off, right? To, to get over 30 points, to be, you know, averaging 26, 27 points if Harden's not going to score and Embiid's not going to be 100%. Game four, you know, steps up in the second half. I've just been, I've been so impressed with how he's handled himself in crunch time. And it really has made me view game three differently in a way because after game three, when we did the pod, I was very much in the camp of, Man, Joel, what a disappointing performance. That's my main takeaway. But then when you see them win game three and game four, it does, and it's something you've been saying all season, the way this team can manufacture wins, it, it stands out. Like those game three and game four are two games they would have lost in the playoffs in past years, in my opinion. So, and I think one of the reasons they didn't is because of Maxi. So what did you see from Maxi in game four? And just moving forward, how do you feel about him maybe having to take his game up another level with a likely hobbled uh, Embiid and maybe not the best version of Harden around the rim. Well, I honestly, I didn't think Maxi was very good, but in game four, at least game three, he obviously was awesome. But game four, he shot about as poorly as Harden did. The difference between them and what I appreciated from Tyrese is that compared to James, who did a lot of that, like, oh, stop short of the rim and putting up these floaters, Tyrese is pushing the pace, trying to get to the rim. And his bigger problem was just aggression. Like he's thinking, mm -hmm. I'm going to score through three guys instead of pulling it out and, you know, trying to run something in the half court. I did think you saw, you know, some of his limitations when a defense plans for him more than they plan for Joel Embiid. Like when Joel's on the floor, it's everything is put out there to stop Joel. And Maxi can kind of slip between the cracks a little bit and be that off-ball secondary scorer. So that was a concern. I mean, the big hero of game four to me was Tobias Harris. And yep. it was a reminder that 
this guy has a lot of he's got a multifaceted skill set that they could tap into it more but they don't mostly because they have better options but in these scenarios where you know Joel's out and they they need to call on somebody like that's a guy you're going to have to run offense for and you know doc said actually after the game that he thought Tobias was hunting his shot a little too much early in that game but I mm-hmm. disagree with them like I want to see on a night that Joel is out of the game or if James is not available that's one of your best players. Like you have yeah. to get him the ball and try to get him going early. Cause you saw it in that game. Once he got into a rhythm, they couldn't really do anything against him in the mid post. Like, yes, he had some possessions where he kind of just ran guys over who were smaller than him, which I love seeing that. That's the type of Tobias that you'd like to see that level of physicality even more. But mm-hmm. even when they play good defense against them, he's just shooting over people. And like, he has that, that in his game that he can use that now it'll be tougher against the Boston team, especially, you know, if Joel's not there and he gets more attention, it's just, yeah, they have better guys. They're better with sending help defense at bad times to turn you over, but that's what it's going to take. It's going to take Tobias Harris having a big game. It's going to take Paul Reed having, you know, 15 rebounds or eight offensive rebounds alone. Like he was awesome. It's going to take P.J. Tucker making those, like, I'm the one guy inside three different opposing players group, and I'm still coming up with a rebound. DeAnthony Melton stepping up. Jalen McDaniel stepping up. Like, I I tweeted this, I think, during game four. The thing that's really striking to me about this team compared to seasons past, like, they just have so many guys that even if they're struggling, they're not playing well, they're just like hardworking athletic guys who will just go and make a play, like a put back dunk, an offensive rebound, dive to hit the floor for a loose ball. Like they just, they've had a lot of specialists in the past and not a lot of guys who are just, this is a two way guy who's going to figure out a way to make a play. And mm-hmm. I think that, in, even though they're much better than Brooklyn and probably win that series regardless. I just think you saw the impact of all the moves they've made since now last July or whatever to improve this team. I think in a way, you know, with the way the series played out games one and game two, you know, Joel is doing his whole, you know, better version of Nikola Jokic, just passing it, you know, doing the whole thing he does. Right. And then games three and four, it's different people. Maxi steps up. But I think looking back at the series as a whole, you could probably say the people that deserve the most credit are, are Doc and, and Daryl Morey. Just in terms of, A, Doc winning those games without Joel. I mean, one game basically without him. And then obviously the fourth one without him. You've written about this, how his, his ability to win when he doesn't have his star players is impressive. And then, yes, they were going to beat the Nets no matter what. They are a better team. But I also think that the differences between this team now and when Daryl Morey took over were very much on display against the Nets, right? Like they're deeper. They have better shooters. I think, you know, the, you mentioned like the addition of P, uh, PJ Tucker. I think Melton also fits that role of like a try hard guy. Um, so I thought that those two in particular had a good series. You know, we've debated this or discussed it on the pod, I should say, about the moves Daryl has made, how much of an impact has he made, those type of things it really kind of all came together. And, you know, you kind of say it with Paul Reed too, like Doc was willing to play, play Paul Reed. We can do the whole in the regular season. Should he have played him more like early on, whatever, blah, blah. Bottom line is he is doing what everybody wanted, which is he might've gotten there a weird way. 
he has Paul Reed playing his best basketball at the end of the season in the playoffs, and he's playing them. And that's that's all people wanted. Well, and just to bring in the last guy essentially in the rotation, like Jalen McDaniels, who they trade Matisse Thibel for him. There's obviously like a, a Thibel truther section of this fan base who is always mm-hmm. like, he's getting better from three and blah, blah, blah. And like obviously had a defensive impact. Jalen McDaniels scored four points in that game four. They're four points that Matisse Thibel has not scored in his entire <laughs> career. They're plays where it's toward the end of the shot clock, ball comes to Jalen, and it's just a you got to figure something out. You got to beat somebody off the dribble. You got to use a step through move to get by somebody and score. And those are like four points is four points, but like those type of things add up from all your role players. Like you're not going to ask whether it was Thibel, McDaniels, whoever you could have traded them for, you're not mm. going to ask them to have a huge scoring role on this team. Like you're just not. But the fact that you can say to him or ask him, look, Jalen, you're out there to space the floor and play defense and do all this. But if the chips are down and it comes your way, we trust you to go make a play. The more of those guys you have in the playoffs, the harder it becomes to beat you. Like you're just yeah. a more foolproof team at all times. And I think like it might be a small move. I don't even know you could call it an upgrade based on, you know, the defensive upside is higher with Thibel. I get all that, but like that, those are big moments within games like that. And those I think will matter as we get deeper into the playoffs. Well, and especially I remember at the trade deadline doing the pod and there was definitely a sense among the fan base of nothing was done, right? Their only goal was to get under the tax. And I, so I do think McDaniels is an upgrade over Thibel, but regardless, it certainly turned into a move that's having somewhat of an impact at, at least early on in this. So the the last kind of big picture point I want to talk about, uh, it would feel wrong not to talk about Paul Reed. So one of the reasons I've enjoyed doing this podcast with you is you'll you'll say something on a Wednesday and then on Thursday's game, I notice it. So you've been you've been like, you know, Miss Cleo with the with the predictions. But <laughs> But uh, hopefully not from the, this, you know, whatever, the scam artist part of that Netflix. Yeah, topic. no, no, no. <laughs> all, all real over here. Yeah, which is wild. But so you brought something up. Uh, it was your last part of the pod before how, you know, we think of Paul Reed as this just like athletic, try hard, like rumbling all around type of guy. But his touch around the rim is actually really impressive. Really good. Yeah. And I've noticed that a ton ever since you brought it up. Um, just watching him in game four, obviously he steps up, has to start, put again, Doc started him, props to Doc. But like, I just think what we're watching with him is a player that is definitely going from someone that we can talk about, you know, start, uh, you know, being a backup, playing eight minutes in the playoffs to someone that I just love Jalen Hurts press conference. He's not going to get Jalen Hurts money, but you know, he might get like AJ Brown money. Like if he keeps playing this well, right? Like him. So I, I just think watching him evolve, watching the touch around the rim, watching him make some, himself some money. I mean, he's an incredibly impressive player for the role he's asked to play. So I want to, you brought up Doc earlier. I want to stick on him for a second. To me, the important thing is not that Doc started Paul Reed. It's that after Paul Reed had a bad first half, Doc said, I still trust you and yeah. you're going to play. And you know, we can talk about a lot of factors and player development, but one thing that is abundantly clear is being empowered and having and feeling confident that like I can make a mistake. I can go out there and I might miss an assignment. There might be a miscommunication. I might miss a couple shots, but the coach is not going to say immediately, 
get that motherfucker off the floor. Like it's yeah. a lot of, okay, you, you dealt with the tough stretch. You didn't play well, but you've shown us enough. You've worked hard enough. You've done enough for this team and this group that we are going to give you the benefit of the doubt and go out there. And I think that honestly is the biggest thing with Paul. Like he has always been this super try hard offensive rebounding, just long athletic guy, but he didn't have the rope that he does now. Like there just mm-hmm. was not enough or there wasn't enough patience for him to become a better player. And, you know, you could see that there was a lot of uncertainty. And now you see a guy that's gotten plenty of minutes that's continued to play hard. And look, like I've said this in several different formats at this point, the number one reason to play Paul Reed is that he plays harder than anybody else on the team. Mm -hmm. And when that guy comes in and sets that sort of tone, it brings up everybody. It forces everybody else on the floor with him, whether that's Melton who already plays hard, whether that's McDaniels who already plays hard, George Niang, who like I make fun of his defense, but he had some decent defensive moments in that playoff series. Like Paul Reed playing that hard helps to lift up everybody else on the team just by setting an example for everybody else. And he actually said, and this is also to his tremendous credit on top of the, the finishing stuff. Paul Reed said that part of the reason that he accepts being coached hard by the coaching staff is that he wants to set an example for the rest of the team that like he does something wrong. He's willing to say he'll put his hand up and say, yeah, coach, I was wrong because he wants the other guys, including the star players on the team to see that and feel that and know that like it's OK to be wrong or make a mistake and then yeah. just go out there and fix it. And so to have the self-awareness to say that and to think that and to carry yourself that way, that's a really important thing for a young role player to pick up on. So, you know, I, I know that the, I've said a hundred times, like the numbers have not been great for him on the floor over the course of the season, but I think it's undeniable that this guy has developed in a positive way for them. And I think he has more than earned his right to be, you know, an Mm -hmm. important part of the rotation in the playoffs. One of the things I always think is really interesting in sports is how like once a narrative is made, how hard it is to break that narrative. And I think with Paul Reed, the narrative has always been they're not playing him enough. They're not developing him well. He needs to be in there more, blah, blah, blah. I'm curious, and I don't know the answer to this or really have a strong opinion one way or the other. Do you think now that we're seeing this version of Paul Reed when they need him most? And look, it's the Nets. We'll see against Boston, whatever. Do you think they've handled this right? Like, you know, if they play him more minutes last year, do you think he's already this player? Do you think his development just took this long? And this is how long it was going to take for him to always be this player. It's one of those things that's kind of impossible to say. Like at a minimum, I think I would have never signed Montrez Harrell, for example. And I would have said, Paul Reed, this is your job this year. We're going to let you play the whole year. And, you know, Paul finally gets his chance, his real chance in, I want to say it was like late January, early February of this year to be the guy. And that ended up being enough time. So maybe if you play him in November, December, most of January, he's even further ahead than he is right now. And we could say that, but, but clearly like he has not, I don't think he's suffered from, from not playing. It doesn't seem like it. It seems like he has a good attitude and a good approach to the situation, you can see a difference in how, you know, Doc has talked about him and how the 
the team treats him like beginning of this season. It wasn't just the coaching staff. You could see he fought like George Niang for a couple of rebounds that they ended up losing as a team. And George chewed him out. There are a lot of moments where James Harden is yelling at him because he's not setting the screen that he wants or he's not rolling mm-hmm. correctly or whatever it is. So it's not been like a, oh, Doc just says this guy can't play. It's He's had to gain the trust of his teammates. And I think that has been a huge part of his ascension here. And it's been part of, not the whole reason, but part of why Doc's been more willing to trust him. And that's been a big development for them. I think about it sometimes a little bit. Uh, you know, like rookie quarterbacks in the NFL. I'm a big proponent of just play them. Like just put them out there and play them. You learn your best by being out there, all those things. But the other train at school of thought is if you put a guy out there for big minutes or big responsibilities before he's not ready, then you can wreck his confidence as well. And to your point about us not knowing the answer, we're not in those meetings. We're not in Paul Reed's head. We're not in, you know, knowing what he knows. But yeah, I mean, maybe if they play him big minutes early, he's not ready. He, you know, to your point about earning the trust of his teammates, maybe it gets to a point where he can't do it, right? Like it just snowballs and it's an ugly situation. But no matter how it how it played out, clearly he's been awesome. And it was he was a huge part of the reason they were able to win uh win game four. So before we wrap this up, and we're gonna do a lot of Boston talk, obviously, this week, but I do want to get your initial just kind of thought. You can make a prediction, you're welcome to change if you want, you cannot. Um just curious, you know, with the Joel stuff, with everything, just where are you at uh, with Boston? Well, I would have picked Boston to win regardless because I think home court is that valuable. And I think okay. Boston has just had their number. The Joel thing makes me think like, man, this could get ugly potentially wow. if Joel's not right. Now, this team has surprised all year and backs against the wall situations. And, you know, it's not like... Other than I think the opening game of the season, which was an entire lifetime ago, I don't know how much stock I put into that. Other than that one, all the games have been fairly close. And you could sit there and say, even the games they lose, it's not like Boston clearly outclassed them. Mm-hmm. I just think, and, and we go back to the years past, it's like this is a franchise that has had their number for quite a while. And the main guys are still the main guys there. And so all that on top of the home court, on top of Joel being hurt, it's like not feeling great about this series. Now, if they are somehow able to come out of it, this thing is wide open. Like I think yeah. we've seen that with between injuries elsewhere, underperformances elsewhere, whatever it is, there is no just unstoppable force in the NBA right now. We'll see what the Bucks look like with Giannis look, looking like he's about to return, but Nobody out there is like, man, that's the apex predator that they just can't beat. So I think if they can win this series, then I think they might win the title. But I I just don't think they're winning this series. Yeah, so I tweeted out when the Giannis injury happened that Sixers Celtics is the NBA Finals. And everyone's in my mentions like, that's not physically possible. It's like, yeah, we get it. I know. What I'm saying is, (laughs) to your point, like, yes, I think if they can win this series, they will win the title. And I, I look. I think they are going to win the series still. Maybe that's blind optimism. Maybe that's blind. Like I've doubted them all along and been wrong and they'll prove me wrong again. The the Joel thing is worrisome for sure. I mean, like the whole kind of reason I picked them initially, but also just my optimism about them throughout has been what you said, Joel's, this is the year. Like this is a year where it feels like he's ready to be that guy. 
And it's just such a buzzkill if he's not gonna if he's not gonna be able to do it. So we'll know more about Joel hopefully throughout the week. I mean, there'll there'll be practices. Maybe you'll get more information. I'm sure there'll be more leaked reports, those type of things. So by the time game one rolls around, we'll have a better feel. But yeah, I mean, I think I'm just I'm choosing blind optimism. Maybe that's not the best path to go, but with everything that he's done this year, I, I still have have some hope they'll do it. So. Until then, uh, we will definitely be back with more episodes this week. Talk more about the series, get more into the uh, matchups. As I joked earlier, Kyle absolutely nailed the net series in terms of what to look for. So I look forward to hearing from him what I should look for against Boston. And, uh, you know, we'll keep our fingers all cr- crossed all week for Joel. So, uh, Kyle, I'll talk to you next time. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening. Talk to you guys soon.